Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science. This is half an hour where we talk about all sciencey things. Well, some sciencey things. I think this week we're going to be talking about animally sciencey things. Who are we? Well, I am Stu, and with me I have Chris. Hello, Stu. Hey, Chris. Now, what animally sciencey thing have you got for us this week? Well, Stu. Being a parent of young children, I find that they are a source of inspiration for for science stories, just simply by asking questions. And the other day I had a question which I'm pretty certain was along the lines of, Daddy, why are dinosaurs so big? Hey, look, that's a good question. It's a very good question. And so I thought, oh, I don't know exactly. So I thought I'd look it up. Spoiler alert, we don't know for certain, but there are some theories about about um, what went on there evolutionarily. I mean, you know, there was a lot more room around at the time, so of course they got big, right? Oh, like, yeah, what is it, um, Pangaea? <laughs> yeah, a pretty big continent. There, there is actually a link between the size of the space animals have and how big they get, though, isn't there? I think- well, there is, yeah, a phenomenon known as island dwarfism where um, animals on small islands tend to be smaller. Yeah, yeah, I wonder. Um, that is super interesting. Well, we'll get into that a bit later mm. in the show. I'm talking about something which is vaguely unrelated, actually. No, I'm talking about uh, hybrids, and I'm talking about why some animals seem to be able to hybridize, and you can get hybrids of unrelated species. Well, not completely unrelated species, um, but different species, and other Animals you can't. I'm looking actually at why, you know, we, we've probably heard of, um, you know, dog and wolf hybrids, mm-hmm. but but why do we not have dog and fox hybrids? And there's a lot actually to unpack in this, but also we may not be completely without dog and fox hybrids, as I will elaborate on in my story. Wow. Is it a fox terrier? Is that what you're going to introduce? No, because I think they were for hunting foxes. Oh, okay. Um, no, it's it's completely something okay. something new, something different, something from South America. You'll have to stay tuned to find out. So let's get on with the show. Okay, yes, you'll listen to Lost in Science, the the biggest science program on at this very moment, I suppose, that you're listening to. The biggest science program you listen to right this now. Um, I don't know. Can with I at least that? With at least one ear. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Because I'm talking about big things, and in particular, some of the biggest animals to have ever lived, namely some of the dinosaurs. As I said in the introduction, this is a question asked by... Um, one of my three-year-olds, basically why are dinosaurs so big? And 
it, it's not an easy question to answer. We're talking about evolution, and evolution is not um, necessarily the easiest thing to uh, to fathom. However, you also have to restrict the question a little bit um, because there are a lot of big dinosaurs. Um, but I suppose the, the most interesting is the really big ones and how they, how and why they got to be so big. So the really big ones would be like the sauropods, like your uh, your your formerly known as Brontosaurus. Is, is that the Yeah, those talking? ones. The ones that were the thin at one end, thick in the middle and thin at the other end. As yeah, the, good um, description. The Monty Python sketch went. Uh, yeah, so um, Brontosaurus, whether it is a species or not, that's still, I think, up for debate, what is kind of the most familiar example people have. They, and like you said, they're the, the sauropods. And they were truly massive. Now, we should put this in the context. As far as we know at the moment, the largest animal to ever lived is indeed the blue whale. Although occasionally there are discoveries, like fossil discoveries, that put that into question. Recently, early this year, there was a fossils of a species dubbed Perucetus that was a type of extinct kind of whale, a bit more like a manatee, I think they, they decided. But it was potentially bigger than the blue whale in, in mass. But it's only like, a, you know, haven't got a great samples of it. And it's there's a lot of estimation that has to be done to try and work out the size of these things. It had very heavy bones, though, which is why they thought it perhaps it was more massive than the blue whale. But that, look, I said, that's unconfirmed. The blue whale, I think, for all intents and purposes, let's just say the blue whale is the verified largest animal to have ever lived so far. And they are truly massive. They are, uh, I think, what, about 30 metres long is their maximum length, and nearly 200 tons is the mass. But they have an advantage because they live in the water, and the water supports uh, their enormous weight. They also have access to a easy supply of food. You know, they're baleen whales. They just swim around the ocean just scooping up plankton and krill and that sort of thing. So they have a lot of advantages to get to that size. So animals on land tend, of course, to be a lot smaller. And the current biggest land animal, of course, is the African elephant, the African bush elephant, to be specific, uh, Loxodonta africana, which is about 10 tons is the maximum weight. So... Tiny compared to a blue whale. Tiny compared to a blue whale, but it's large for a land animal. Yeah. Now, as I said, there are a lot of larger dinosaurs. I just had a look at um, one out of uh, sort of a random guess. So like the, the Triceratops, for instance, is that's a famous dinosaur with the three horns on the head and the big, and the big frill. It is quite large. If you see the fossils that they have at the, the Melbourne Museum, it's, um, it's a pretty big creature. It's estimated, though, to only weigh about, um, well, up to about nine metric tons. So a bit smaller than an elephant. So it's roughly elephant size. Mm-hmm. So when you look at something like that, it is a big animal, but it kind of fits in the range of current megafauna. Yeah. So I'm trying to put things in kind of context here so we yep. can get kind of a, a type sort of thing. But when you look at the sauropods, which are yeah, your brontosaurus type things, they were much, 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 much bigger. Now, which is the biggest one is not... It's always being debated. I suppose one of the ones that people talk about the most as being one of the biggest is a, a, a genus called Argentinosaurus, 
And they are they're they're huge. Now they're in terms of length, they're similar to a blue whale. They're up to say about maybe about thirty five meters long, but they're estimated to weigh as much as eighty tons. Okay, so still not quite the mass of a blue whale, but no, the so length we're talking of about a blue mass. whale. They're about the length of a blue whale. They're much bigger than an elephant, though. So about eight yep. times the size of an elephant. That's what I'm saying. Okay. In terms of land animals, they're incredibly large. Yeah, they're mm. not they're not as big as a blue whale, though, in terms of mass. Yeah, so, yeah, not as large as a blue whale, but again, they're, they're on land. But this gives us part of the clue as to perhaps why they're able to get so big. So they, even though they're kind of as long as a blue whale, they were a lot lighter. They had lighter bones than a blue whale. Okay. So they had kind of, they had very bird-like features in some ways. Even though birds weren't descended from um, sauropods, they were, they had a, um, they had hollow bones similar to what birds have today. Uh, and they had a breathing system that was similar to the way the birds use, where they have air sacs in addition to their lungs that help them to get extra oxygen out of the air. So the, the, you know, the lighter bones meant that they were lighter than perhaps a you know, a, a scaled-up normal terrestrial mammal would be, animal would be. Uh, and, yeah, so that helped them to withstand, I guess, the force of gravity. And the lighter bones helped them also, the, the, the different respiratory system helped them have a faster metabolism, which allowed them to, I guess, grow quickly when they were younger. Also, I wonder if they, you know, one of the one of the restrictions on the growth of animals, and I know this applies to things like insects, is the ability to get oxygenated blood in in you know mammals and reptiles to all parts of the body in in enough time to keep them alive. Um, in order to get that big, you'd have to have a more efficient system of oxygenating the blood than than something that was smaller and didn't have as far to pump the blood, I suppose. Well, you do. You do have to do that, and they certainly had an efficient system for doing that. But also, like the fast metabolism, particularly when they're young, was very helpful because the size of their young did not increase as much as they got gigantic. So they had to grow very fast when they were, when they were juveniles. Right. Um, so look, essentially, like I said, there's all these kind of bits and pieces fit together. So a lot of this was described about 10 years ago in a series of papers published by a group led by Professor Martin Sander from University of Bonn in Germany. And he describes it as a evolutionary cascade, essentially, that you have all these different features that work together and it, and it piles up to have these, these, massive, uh, these massive creatures. So there's not kind of one thing that causes them to be massive. There's not one thing that enables them to be massive. It's having all the right features in the right place, such as things like these, these hollow bones. The hollow bones of fast metabolism that led them to, to grow large. It also made them essentially endothermic. They were warm-blooded because they were so big. They they were quite warm inside. But perhaps you know this respiratory system allowed them to cool down a bit, and perhaps the long neck also allowed them to cool down a bit. But look, another good example of how the the different features work together is just looking at yeah what is required to get to that size, and obviously a lot of food is required to get that large. Now. The the teeth of these animals are rather different to a lot of other herbivores, particularly the herbivores we have today. And a lot of dinosaurs are like this. I think we've discussed this before with some of the carnivorous dinosaurs. They're not so good at chewing. So your sauropods had, um, if you look at their skeletons, they had sharp, pointy teeth, which are great for ripping 
um, leaves off trees. But they're obviously not designed for chewing. So they basically would strip the vegetation and then just swallow it whole. Which so, is not, not a very efficient way to digest anything, is it? Well, but this is when, again, when, like I said, how everything starts to fit together. So this meant that they could have, for instance, have a small head on a long neck because they don't need a large head with large muscles to chew. Right. So they just have, they can have a, lo- a, a small head on a long neck, um, and then, which allows them to move their neck around a lot and reach a lot of vegetation. Um, by standing still, they can just you know move around, um, so they can be very efficient at getting vegetation. But you're right; it's not a very efficient way for digesting it. Which means what you're going to need is you're going to need an enormous digestive system, which you can do if you have an enormous body. Mm. So, so say everything kind of fits together. They have the small heads, the long necks, the enormous body is all part of being able to eat the food that they are eating, which then allowed them to grow big. But it was also, that system was also a requirement for them to be able to feed in that way and to be that kind of dominant species. Mm. So, you know, things like that, uh, yeah, certainly helped them grow to that massive size. Because, of, you know, being large also helps protect you against predators, But which is where you get to the other kind of side of this because some of the largest predators that ever existed were things like your T-Rex and your other carnivorous dinosaurs who of course grew large so they could prey on large dinosaurs and their large sauropods. I mean, let's ignore the fact that there weren't as many sauropods when the T-Rex was alive, but there were other, you know, similar kind of dinosaurs of the T-Rex back, you know, back when the, the age of the sauropods in the Jurassic area. Um, so look, it all kind of fits together. Essentially, have all these these features working out, conspiring, I guess you could say, to grow these uh, these very large uh, sauropods. Look, it is it's kind of thing though that is a very specific set of features, I guess you could say. It's really unlikely that other animals will stumble across this kind of this formula, which is why you don't have in the fossil record. Other animals that large, it's only these particular sauropods that have managed to evolve this enormous size because they just had the right combination of uh, anatomical and metabolic features to be able to do it. But look, it is it is really good that they did, I suppose, because we got to enjoy these giant bones, I guess. And and it, it looks like, um, you know, I think the elephant has put the head at the wrong end of its flexible food-gathering organ if the trunk oh, was, they've got the trunk, yeah. They've got the trunk, which can allow them to stand still a little bit, but it's at the wrong end of... <laughs> Look, maybe their, their we'll mouth give, is at the wrong end. Maybe we'll give the elephants a few more uh, million or hundreds of millions of years to see if they can catch up to, the, to their long, distant... Not ancestors, but predecessors. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short-range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful. Radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Now, you might remember a story from a few years back about how a lab who'd successfully bred domesticated dog-like animals from wild foxes. Do you remember this story? Yeah. Was it... um? Was this a Russian lab? It was. It was a Russian lab, and you know the the kind of the the sensational side of it's been a bit debated. The fox at sea, the foxes they were using were already kind of on the way to being domesticated before they started 
deliberately selecting them for domestication, I suppose, um, just because the population they had had been been captively bred for quite some time before they even started trying to do it. But I guess the, the thing that sort of brought it out is the similarity between foxes and dogs has made people wonder over time whether a fox could be crossed with a dog uh, and though obviously you know there's been various claims made over the years nothing has really been well supported to suggest that uh, foxes can be crossed with dogs the fox we mostly think of is the red fox from the northern hemisphere which is taxonomically classified as vulpes vulpes which has become a pest in Australia. We've probably seen foxes around the place in Australia. They've pretty much got into every habitat. They live in cities, they live in the country, they live all over the place. And it's quite widespread elsewhere in the world. It's all through the Northern Hemisphere. It's even in North Africa. And, you know, it's actually quite a different species to the dog. It's well understood that modern domestic dogs are closely related to Northern Hemisphere wolves, Um, having diverged possibly as recently as 27,000 years, maybe up to 40,000 years, depends on, you know, what you're actually measuring, Um, which is, you know, barely a blink in evolutionary terms. The species um, of wolf that dogs are actually descended from is extinct. So they don't exist in the wild anymore. They went extinct sometime during the last ice ages. And the dogs are sort of the remnant of that population, but their closest relative is the currently existing grey wolf, which we still have examples of in the wild as well. But presumably dogs and foxes or wolves and foxes did have a common ancestor perhaps millions of years ago. Yeah, they are all canids, which means they are all descended from, you know, early carnivores were divided into... Um, I think it's feline-like carnivores and canine-like carnivores, basically. So they're all, you know, the, all the canids are related to each other and foxes fall into that group. So sometime, a long time ago, they were closer related than what they are now. But um, the grey wolves that are still around and dogs, domestic dogs, can freely interbreed uh, and they possess the same number of chromosome pairs. And this is very important for breeding animals and crossbreeding animals means the world is actually full of intermingled dog wolf hybrids anywhere where dogs and wolves territories overlap they kind of seem to appear which is All right. you know down to the down to the dogs and the wolves getting to know each other are they are they um able to then breed the hybrids like because isn't one of the definitions of species that they can have viable offspring this is where it does get a bit hazy because yeah okay. they can they can and the you know there's there's populations in various parts of the world which are known as black wolves they have black um, fur which is apparently a characteristic that has come from dogs oh it wasn't around in the in the ancient wolf uh, populations it was it come has come back into the wolf population from dogs so yeah they they apparently can pass on the genes. Uh, in that way foxes on the other hand are quite distantly related to dogs but they kind of look the same they're dogish looking animals um they don't share any common ancestry recently enough to be closely enough related to each other to breed and this is borne out by their chromosome number too so dogs have 
39 pairs of chromosomes. Foxes have only 17 pairs of chromosomes, and they have a few what they call microchromosomes, which is not quite fully formed chromosomes, which is sort of an evolutionary possibly start of new chromosomes or possibly the remnants of old ones that are dying out. But 39 pairs and 17 pairs, they don't match up. And during sexual reproduction, you have to kind of match up those chromosomes to get a viable embryo. It's part of the process itself. So the discrepancy in chromosome number makes the recombination of chromosome very difficult and sexual reproductions between individuals very unlikely, if not completely impossible. Even in closely related species of animals where hybrids do arise, they're often sterile, as you said, and they can't produce offspring of their own. So you think of things like mules, which are a cross between a donkey and a horse. They are sterile. They can't have more mules. They are the end of that that line. They are sterile and they can't sexually reproduce. But vulpes vulpes are not the only species of fox in the world. And this is where we start to get into some interesting taxonomical terminology, I suppose. In South America, there's a species known as the pampas fox, right? Its, it's taxonomic definition or classification is Lycalopex gymnocerus. Sorry, gymnocersus. And it has a much higher chromosome count than the red fox. But this is partly because it's not really closely related to the red fox. It's actually much more closely related to jackals and wolves than it is to foxes. So it's just it happens to be called a fox because it looks like a fox. It looks like a fox. And right. the reason it looks like a fox is because there's no proper foxes in South America. There's only these wolf descendants who have filled the same niche as foxes so convergent evolution has made them look similar to foxes the name like a lopex actually means wolf fox that's that's the definition of the name and while we're on the subject of names the pampas fox and its like a lopex cousins also go by another name in much of south america do you know what do you know what the spanish word for fox is uh no it's zorro oh really this is yeah. the zorro fox is it this is zorro zorro got his he was the fox he used to oh, run around of run around and he was the fox and they couldn't catch him because he was he was a fox oh, that's but, why he wore black obviously yeah uh obviously but the funny thing is they're not actually foxes but in spanish they are foxes so lots of south america speaks spanish it would make it a lot easier to call this guy zorro except the story i'm following comes from brazil where they speak portuguese so i'll stick with pampas fox because we can follow what i'm on about if we stick with that what is fox in portuguese i don't know okay as reported in the journal animals published in august a female dog-like creature was taken to a wildlife rehab center in brazil after being hit by a car where she was noticed as having a mixture of characteristics of the pampas fox and Canis lupus familiaris, the domestic dog. Now, you'd have to look pretty closely at an animal to notice that it had a combination of characteristics. And that alone is not enough to make a positive ID because domestic dogs are hugely variable in shape and size and 
all their physical characteristics. You know, you th- you look at the difference between a Chihuahua and a Great Dane, or you know, a Mastiff or something, and you go, how are they even the same species? But they are. That's how variable the dogs actually are that we have. So they were looking at this animal that they brought in, and they went, look. We're not sure. It's actually behaving in an undog-like fashion. It's, ha- it's behaving quite a lot like a pampas fox. Let's take its DNA and see what's going on. So they took DNA samples, they analysed them, and they found that the animal was actually a hybrid between a domestic dog and the local native pampas fox, which they christened a dogzim, which is partly to do with the Portuguese name, common name for the pampas fox. But unfortunately, this animal passed away some time after being taken to the conservation centre and there were no reports and possibly no easy way to test if the animal was actually sterile or not. So we don't really Mm. know for sure whether it was a sterile hybrid or whether this is a potential population or beginning of a population. So the individual was a female, which means that, you know, potentially could have given birth to uh, offspring and that could, you know, uh, be an ongoing line of, of new creatures, I suppose. The main concern of the researchers in this case is that domestic dogs may be able to interbreed with these native canids, not just in Brazil, not just in South America, but in various places around the world and this has already happened as i said with with uh wild wolf populations there is already a crossover with um you know uh domestic dogs or feral dogs in various places and that could mean a change or a shift in the genetics of those populations and dog-like species in the wild will potentially have their you know populations interfered with or their viability interfered with over time and they may not fit the actual evolutionary niche that they are there to fulfill in those ecosystems that they have so as uh this may well be a problem elsewhere in the world as i said and it's actually already been studied in australia so dingo populations in australia the dingo is a lot more closely related to domestic dogs than it is to uh, other species. Um, luckily, it seems that there isn't a lot of crossover between domestic dogs and dingo populations in Australia. And this may be down to behavioural issues, which is another reason that these researchers in Brazil were quite surprised because the pampas fox doesn't actually behave much like a domestic dog and their sort of you know mating behaviour and that sort of thing would be quite different between different species. But obviously, under the right conditions this can actually happen. Um, So, yeah, I guess this is just sort of the tip of the iceberg, I suppose. But um, you will see this reported all over the place is that it's a fox-dog hybrid when actually it's not really a fox-dog hybrid. It's a uh, a wolf-fox-dog hybrid. Um, It's a Zorro hybrid. (laughs) The the Zorro has crossed with the dog. Dog Zorro, perhaps. That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for joining us. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation, at the studios of 3CR, and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. 
If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsightgmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR or try us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 or just tune in again next week wherever you listen to us when Stu, Claire and Chris get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.